Hey Danny, we're at Town Hall. I've got um, two visitors to come to um, the, the family mill. Uh, Danny is in. Yeah, I certainly can. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Bye bye. Let me just give you both a pass. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, but I don't think I'd find the office on my own. <laughs> This week, Danny and I went to the temporary offices of the Manchester City Council, um, this building on St Peter's Square that they're using while the old town hall is being renovated. And we had our first ever interview with Bev Craig since she took over as leader of the council in December. This is the Manchester Wheatley from the Mail. Welcome to another special weekend episode of the Manchester Wheatley from the Mail. It was around this time last year that I went to Town Hall and I met Sir Richard Lees. He'd been running Manchester for 25 years. He had a real legacy. He was well known. He was known as having a very particular approach to leading the city, which we wrote about in 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 a long piece in our print edition late last year and on the mill. This week we met the woman who's taken over from him, Bev Craig has got different politics from Lees. She's got different ideas. And I think what we've seen in the past few weeks is that she is taking the council, or at least trying to take the council and the city in a different direction. One that focuses less on the city centre and more on the whole city. One that puts more of an emphasis on social and affordable housing and makes that more of a political priority. And I think she's more comfortable talking about that as a, a major concern in Manchester. This is my interview with Bev Craig. Bev Craig, thanks very much for speaking to the Mail. Yeah, good to, good to talk to you. The reason we wanted to speak to you is because in the past week you've made a few announcements that have all linked to housing. Mm. And it kind of, in the Mill newsroom, it gave us the impression that there was a bit of a new chapter there, there was a bit of a new kind of direction for the city. You've taken over as leader in December. Yeah. And now you're making these big announcements around um, your housing strategy, mm. landlord licensing, your living rent. What should our listeners and our readers take from these announcements? Um, so one of the reasons that we announced um, what we plan to do with the housing strategy is this week it's going through scrutiny and by the end of the month we'll take it to executive. And what that does is it sets out Manchester's 10-year plan for housing in the city. I was really keen when I got elected um, as leader of Manchester that housing was a priority and that we made it a priority. So we've spent the last six months um, refreshing the council's old housing strategy. So we had a strategy that ran from 2016 to 2025. We've taken the decision to bring that forward, to bring it earlier, to create a new 10-year plan. And as part of that, to be both ambitious but realistic um, as to what we could achieve you know, and I, I, I only half jokingly said to my Labour group in private that, listen, if we get a Labour government, I will rip this strategy up in a heartbeat and we will come back at it much, much more ambitious. So what we're setting out is over the next decade, um, we have to build around about 36,000 homes. They're government targets that have been given to us through the Places for Everyone plan, stuff that's been well talked about. But we really have to push ourselves in the city around what we build in terms of social and genuinely affordable housing. And that's where I'll come on to the Manchester living rent bit in a moment. So what I've said is, well, for the next decade, I want at least 10,000 
of those 36,000 homes to be social and genuinely affordable and to make sure that we're building those. We're building some of those ourselves. So we're now building through this city where we're going to build in places including the city centre and Ancoats where we're starting, but also working with social landlords and our partners to make sure that we're building the homes that we need. That we're looking at what we can do around regulation um, of the private sector. So in Manchester, just under 40% of all people that live here rent privately. Um, and then we're also looking at how we can deal with some of the issues around zero carbon and a just transition. And that's why we're starting, even though there's no national government finance yet, with a plan that within the first, um, well, over the next 10 years, we will be retrofitting at least a third of our social housing stock. So for reference in the city, we've got just over 68,000 social homes. We want to be retrofitting at least a third of those. Um, So all of these things brought together, I think, are around a renewed vision and ambition for what we can do to keep Manchester growing, but to make sure that the housing market reflects the level of demand that we see in our city. And what we see in the city is the consequence of pitching ourselves as a world-class international city where we want to grow, we want to create jobs, we're seeing people move here. You know, 2005, we had a population of 420,000 people. We're now pushing nearly 600,000 and projected to be 627,000 over the next couple of years. So we've really got to keep up with housing demand across all market tenures, but really not losing sight around that point or on social and genuinely affordable. Mm. And the, the different direction that this looks like mm. is compared to the last leader. So you took over in December. There seems to be more of a focus on looking outside of the city centre. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be more of a focus on regulating the private rented sector markets. What, mm. what, as from you as a politician and you as a leader, what's driving those priorities? So I think for me, sometimes in Manchester we become obsessed by the city centre. And that's not to say it's not a fantastic place. It absolutely is. You just need to look at what's happened in the city centre over the last 20 years. You know, we've gone from no one living here to almost 60,000 people, if you interpret it in its widest sense, it includes Anchorage and Newington. You know, I lived in the city centre 2008, 2010. Hardly anybody at that point lived in the city centre. So I'm at no point doing down the success as Manchester city centre. But even at 60,000 of our population... Manchester's nearly 600,000. The vast majority of people in Manchester do not live in the city centre. They can appreciate it, they can work here, they can shop here, they can drink here, but they live in other communities. And they deserve just as much in terms of investment, in terms of high quality, in terms of great places to live and to be as city centre. So I wanted to make sure that we're not just talking about the city centre. And having affordable and social housing in the city centre is important because it shows we can do it. Mm. But also, if you live in Withenshaw, if you live in North Manchester, Mm. as a council, we have to be able to offer Mm. a really exciting vision of what we can do in those communities. So so that's really important to me. Um, And then the second thing I'll say is around um, the private sector. I think we would all want to see something much, much more ambitious from a government in terms of regulation. You know, there's been hints to it, some of the stuff that's been coming out of Michael Gove at the moment, that shelter's welcomed in terms of renter's charter. But actually, you look at other European countries, you look at Germany, you look at how the rented sector's regulated, you look at rent caps, you look at all of those things that you need to happen at a national level. So whilst all of these policy areas are operating in the void 
nationally. We wanted to do what we can here in Manchester with, albeit at times, fairly limited tools, but we wanted to make sure we were maximising what we could get out of selective licensing, for example. So landlord licensing that we've just expanded to another eight areas of the city. It's been piloted effectively already. It has, yeah. And what it shows is it shows it works, it shows it drives up standards, it shows it limits evictions, and it matters in terms of quality. And I think from my perspective, you know, the city is changing in terms of how people live and how they experience it. And I think there's also a generational component to this around the constant cycle of renting because it's taking people much longer across the country to get on the housing market ladder, even if that's what they want to do. So we just have to make sure that as we build more properties that are within the private sector, as large landlords move in and take up more territory, that actually we're, we're saying that ultimately, in terms of what people can expect from their home, should come first before what you expect from your business. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, you could say that's pretty political, mm. but it really massively impacts on people's quality of life. Yeah. I remember when you became leader, mm. there was a certain amount of discussion, including on the mail, about what kind of leader you were going to be. You gave an early interview to Place Northwest, the property mm. website, and they, they were kind of pushing you, are you pro-developer? And, <laughs> and you were like, kind of, yeah. But, 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 no, no, I said I was pro-Manchester. Pro-Manchester, but, but you know, effectively pro-investment, but with some yeah. strings attached. So there was also sort of discussion of, you know, was Bev Craig a member of Momentum? Is Bev Craig sort of coming from the, the Corbynite side of the Labour yeah, Party? Yeah, yeah. Tell our listeners and, and our readers, what is your politics and how does that inform your policy on these things? So I'd, I'd start off by saying that in life, um, good analogies, anyone in life that's tried to line manage me has probably always find it a little bit difficult. And the reason I think that's important is that I don't buy into personality politics. So, you know, you would never have seen me with a Jeremy Corbyn t-shirt on, the same way you'll never see me with a Keir Starmer t-shirt on or, you know, any other leader. I think from my perspective, there's about having some fundamental core politics around why you're in politics and what you want to achieve. You know, and I'm, I'm really open about my background. I feel that I'm lucky. And I don't feel it should be down to chance or luck. I would love to be able to say that, you know, you buy into this mantra of work hard, be clever, do well. Mm. I know lots of people back on the estate that I grew up on that are dead bright, that work so hard every day and don't get the same chances in life. So, so my politics are always rooted in that. Growing up on a working class estate, eight miles outside of Belfast, with people that have been consistently let down by services, because they've been undervalued and they've been underestimated. So, you know, that, that, that's given me the analysis. I didn't grow up in a party political, political household. You know, anyone that knows Northern Irish politics, it's, I'll, I'll be kind and say it's a little bit odd. Mm. Um, but I think coming to Manchester, finding a city that I, for the first time in my life, felt comfortable and at home in, gave me something powerful. So there'll always be a class analysis in my politics. But similarly, sometimes the Labour Party is fashionable. You know, you were born in a barn, you lived in a coal bunker, you had to eat coal for breakfast, life was terrible. And when you speak to most normal people, what they want is a hope of something that's a better future. So for me, when I think about what it is that I want to achieve in Manchester, I want Manchester to be a successful city. I want us to be known for attracting world-class talent and having the best and the brightest people. Mm. But I also want us to be known for having the best and brightest Mancunians 
kids that are growing up in our city that can benefit from all of the things that we've brought here and that can be our future chief you know chief execs they can be our future innovators they can be millionaires but also they can have a decent good quality life where they're happy working in the local community and not talking down some of these jobs and professions in a way that makes it sound that you have to be a tech innovator or a professional middle class person to do well yeah. i think it was around eight months ago that i was in this office mm. with your your predecessor sir richard Lees, and we talked about his background he grew up in a, in a, in a coal house in, in Nottinghamshire Coalfield and we talked. We had a really good chat about his background and, and that was in the piece that we wrote. But I think his politics when he was running Manchester were, um, were less about social housing and affordable housing and probably more just about getting the money in, getting the investment in, being really sort of mm. you know, hard-nosed about attracting investors into Manchester. It sounds like your approach to leading this city is, is different, and obviously you're taking over at a very different time. And I, I think there's a fundamental point in that. So I moved to Manchester in 2003. You know, I remember what the city looked like then, and it was on the cusp of, of things developing. Um, I think there's, there's something around the hand that Manchester has to play. So if you think about, I don't know, just before the Conservatives came in, you think about 2009, the tail end um, of the financial crash in terms of what it meant just before it hit. Um, I think Manchester was in a position where it needed development more than development needed Manchester. So I think as, as we've seen our successes over the course of the last decade, I think Manchester's hand has shifted and it's my job to make sure that we properly play that hand. The second thing I'd say is that for all of our successes in the city, we're still the sixth most deprived local authority area in the country. So you tell anyone growing up in bits of Manchester where 42% of kids are living in poverty that they don't need more jobs, they don't need a stronger economy, and that they don't need investment. I don't think that's, that's an honest way to level it to them. So I think Manchester's in a position where I want us to continue to attract new companies to come and work here to attract growing sectors in our economy, to make sure that we build on the successes of our universities where we now have some of the highest graduate retention rates in the UK and retention of Manchester graduates as well. Um, but I want us to make sure that we're able to explain that to Manchester people, that we're connecting everything that we're doing right back to that fundamental view of economics that says, you know, bring in money into an economy and make sure it's directed in a way that people can benefit from it. <laughs> You haven't quite told me which bit of the party you come from, but that's oh, it, is a good no, so, so, so Google me. So I set up um, a group called Open Labour um, at a time when the Labour Party was ripping shreds out of each other. Mm. Uh, it's traditionally kind of the soft left of the party. Mm. Um, so I didn't get into the ego side of things. Mm. I wasn't going to follow originally a man that didn't want to do it. Mm. But that's not to say that you can't share some of those economic views. Mm. I did differ significantly, I think, around some of the foreign policy stuff mm. um, and particularly some of the wedge issues that emerged in the Labour Party. Mm. But, but no, I've, my politics haven't changed the party. I've been mm. consistently unfashionable um, throughout, throughout my course. But mm. where I'd say that comes from, though, is twofold. The first is that at uni I probably spent more time trying to save the world and, and drinking than reading kind of Marx and, and you know, economy books. Mm. But coming from Northern Ireland, there, there was an experience that really resonated with me. Um, so I had a bit of a rough time, 
growing up gay um, where, where I was. I mean, I probably wouldn't have advised at the time for any 14-year-olds to have come out. Um, difficult period. Ended up finding my feet with, with a group of people in Belfast. Got involved in lots of different social justice campaigns. Was involved in setting up an LGBT youth group. Came from a very staunch, loyalist, Protestant community. The only political party that would listen to us back in 2000, 2001 was Sinn Féin. Now that really actually influences your politics in a way that surprises you. And I think that's probably where um, people might see it as something that's a bit soft or a bit something that's not defined. But I think you can draw from different traditions if you want to be a pragmatist. And I think if you want to run a city, you have to be a pragmatist. Rooted in, in your politics, rooted in your principles, and I've got principles that I'll never, um, you know, n never step away from. But running things is hard, and you have to have the ability to be pragmatic about some of that. Yeah. You mentioned um, the poverty that still exists in the city, the, still being the, the local authority with the sixth highest poverty mm. in the country. When I interviewed Richard Lees, I was like, how has that not changed over 20 years? How has the ranking not changed, even though Manchester's made all this progress? It suggests that there are neighbourhoods in this city, large stretches of the city, that have not economically benefited from the new jobs and the new businesses yeah. and the economic growth. You've been talking a lot about housing in the past week. Mm. Is that a part of the jigsaw of trying to solve that problem, of, of, of actually allowing people to flourish from those neighbourhoods? I think so, and I, I think it, it's something that, you know, we, we can talk about mixed and sustainable communities. Um, for me, that means that you have to have more supply, and that's a given, and that's one of the things that Hires and Strategies is trying to do, is create more supply, especially in social um, and capped at local housing rate alliance affordable housing so low cost basically if you've not got a phd in yeah. the many myriad of terms around affordable housing and mm -hmm. um, but it's also around having mixed offers so say you're a family growing up in moston or harper hay and your kids are doing well but they want to stay local and there isn't the housing to be able to do that they might want to own their own home so you also have to make sure that you're building low-cost options that appeal to different people. So we might look at low-cost um, shared ownership options so that you know, the kids can stay close by, um, granddad and grandma can look after their kids as they go to school. So for me, it's around having a clear view as to how you build communities. Um, and you don't just create ghettos where you put all of your cheap housing in one place and all of your nice posh housing somewhere else. It's around mixing some of that and having a clear view of that. And frankly, does that mean that we need to build more houses in places where there is the most middle class opposition to them, like your Chaltons and your Didsbury's? They tend to be a lot of opposition when you try and build new stuff there, but the market tells us that's where a lot of people want to, want to live. Yeah, and it's where the market tells us, but also urban planning tells us. You know, so, so there's a couple of things. The first is that there is genuine evidence that across the piece, the property market is hot in Manchester. I don't mean that in a fun way. Um, you know, anybody looking to rent or buy a house, there is more demand than there is supply. So we have to deal with the supply problem. And we see that with the fact that we don't have high void rates. We don't have shed loads of overseas investors that just sit with empty properties. And, and void rates mean social housing that's empty? Any housing that's empty. Yeah. So, so there are limited empty homes in Manchester. And you might look around and often people will say to me, do we need more flats? Those flats go off spec 
Mm. And it's not just barristers that live in there. Baristas are just as likely to live in the city centre as barristers. Mm. So we need it everywhere. I mean, it's fascinating. There's been a local debate um, in an area of Didsbury around affordable housing with some surprising opponents to said option. And for me, it's about making sure that every community in every area has got an offer. And the reality is we have some derelict sites in East and North Manchester, but there are other places that there will have to be homes built on too if we're, we're able to fill the demand. And the final thing I'll say is that all of the evidence shows that the more you build in cities, the better it is for the climate. So actually, our views around getting to zero carbon, our views around sustainability go hand in hand with urban development. And that's that's going to be a difficult thing to square, but that's what the evidence suggests. You're going to need to tell listeners what you mean about Didsbury, what's going on there. Oh, there's um, currently a a contentious um, plan for affordable housing in the ward of Didsbury West. Um, And a member of of one of our opposition parties that spent such a long time complaining that the council wasn't building any affordable housing, lo and behold, suddenly comes out opposing affordable housing in his ward. That would be as being polite. Um, But for years, lambasted my predecessor around not building affordable housing. The first chance to test his metal, um, and he he bottles it. Very crudely, is it is the thing that in areas where you own land and where there is cheap land, there can be lots of building. But in areas which are pretty constrained when it comes to land, I don't know, Russia and all that kind of thing, that's where the landlord licensing comes in. Absolutely. Because frankly, that's the lever you can pull. Yeah. Is that broadly true? Broadly, and I would differentiate the land point. So um, I've been quite clear uh, with council staff that where we own land as a city council, there's, there's three tests. One can you have affordable housing on it? Two, can you have massive job creation in a way that's a game changer? Or or three, is there a community provision point around GP, school, community access, all of that stuff? And that that's what governs how we use the land we have. The second is around land that we don't have, um, land that we don't own. um, And we live in a country with very weak planning laws. So often what we can do at planning has to be legally compliant. It's not necessarily what a Labour Party councillor might want to pass or whether, whether they like the design or whether or not they like the, the points that's been made around affordability. There is a legislative framework that governs that. So I would differentiate that. But in areas where there is no land or limited land to build on, that's where we have to work with what we've got. And in vast ways of the city, that's either highly populated um, private sector landlords or at social housing. One of the numbers that always gets brought up when it comes to housing is the number of people living in temporary accommodation Mm. who are homeless. It has ballooned in Manchester from 2014 from hundreds of households to thousands of households. We're talking about a a few thousand households now. What do you think is driving that? Because we've spent months looking into this issue and trying to understand it. Help listeners to understand why it is so high in Manchester compared to other bits of Greater Manchester. Okay, so I think there's there's a couple of points that I think I would start off by asking your listeners to reflect on what's happened that could possibly be different. That if by 2009 we'd, we'd vastly reduce the number of people that were homeless in the city, presentations were, were fairly minimal. 2010, coalition government comes along. By 2014-15, um, you know, all the analysis shows, and this isn't just Manchester, 
it's other cities, it's London, that that's the point at which austerity started to bite. The government didn't lift their ban on councils borrowing until, I think, 2017 to be able to build. So suddenly by 2015, you're starting to see the impact of benefit cuts, welfare reductions, austerity, job losses, um, not having the same level of supply coming through. So I think we can't talk about what's happened in cities like Manchester without touching on austerity because it's the fundamental driver of one of the biggest problems that we face. I think where we are now, so if I think back to 2015-16, we probably had about 400 um, families in temporary accommodation. Uh, we're now up to um, well into the thousands. And I think I've made it a priority, um, twofold really. One is to prevent the number of people going in to temporary accommodation in the first place. And the second is to make sure that actually people aren't staying in temporary accommodation beyond what they really need to do. If it's temporary accommodation, it needs to be temporary. Um, and we've got a challenge in our hands. So I think part of what we're doing, we're looking at how we can work with um, both within the council around building to make sure there's a supply, but also working with um, some of those private landlords and making sure that it's not an incentive to rent out temporary accommodation rather than keeping a family in a home. And I think sometimes there is too much of an incentive for landlords to do that, so we're, we're going to be camping down on that. Final question, Bev Craig. There are suggestions that one of the reasons Manchester has such a high number in temporary accommodation is because the council hasn't worked out how to do this yet. They got very high homelessness in about five or six years ago and they just haven't worked out the systems to deal with it in the way that some London boroughs now do, who have very high pressures, but they're dealing with it in a different way. Do you think the council could have done anything better in this area? And what are the concrete things that, that you can do in, in the next few months to reduce the number of mm. people in temporary accommodation? Because it must be something that keeps you up at night. Oh, no, absolutely. I think it's one of the biggest challenges that we face. Um, you know, nobody, nobody should be living in temporary accommodation um, in such a rich and developed country. Um, you know, I, I, would, I would say, though, and I would, I would question looking in, a, in the round as to where places have dealt with the issue better um, and I wouldn't judge it just on the metrics of the number of people living in temporary accommodation London local authorities have been well documented at least over the last decade of placing people outside of London we've all seen the programmes families have been sent to Stoke been sent really far away from London we don't do that um, and cynically if we wanted to reduce the number of people living in temporary accommodation we could do that tomorrow but we won't so I think there's an element of being careful what you wish for when you look at how a problem is managed. Because if you look at the numbers coming through London's doors, you look at the numbers of people um, waiting on their social housing list, and then you look at the number of people that they pass on to other kinds of accommodation, actually the scale of that challenge is really significant. And my challenge to Manchester officers is to make sure that we don't become London. Because when I speak to families from Burnage, from Harper Hay, from Moston, from Rusholme, they don't want to be sent, you know, I'm not going to pick on Stoke, yeah. but they don't want to be sent 100 miles away. Yeah. It's just not what we do. So I think there's, there's part of that. Some places use um, exempt accommodation in ways that we wouldn't. You know, they use it to escape. That's accommodation that works slightly differently legally in terms yeah, of how you get in terms of where the benefits go. Yeah. Um, so we'll look at what we can do around supporting people, but what we won't do is directly put more money into the pockets of unregulated landlords that will seek to profit off it. So in terms of some of the specific things that we're looking at, we're looking at building purpose-built, 
and some of that's coming to fruition. So we've got Apex House, which is on the edge of my ward in Burnage, which deals with homeless families. We're expanding that model and we're going to have a couple of them quickly. But that's still temporary accommodation. It is temporary accommodation, but it's getting the flow away from B&B. So we want to end B&B placement as a starter and then to look at temporary accommodation as you move through and then to move them into more permanent accommodation. That will involve working with um, the private sector that's properly regulated. Um, So building, regulating the private sector, um, and we're also doing um, more work upstream with housing providers around people who've been through our asylum um, system and got a positive decision. So find that they have leave to remain, found by the government they've got the right to stay. Because you get that letter and you're evicted from your private Circo-run accommodation. And Manchester has a lot of those. Yeah, I mean, we've we I've been really, really, really open. We will do this, you know, in a humane um, and and kind of political way. We're a big city. We're a city that's a home of migrants. We've been built by people that have come from all across the world to do that, um, and we're a welcoming city. But the government still places more people in Manchester whilst they're awaiting a decision um, than they do in the entirety of London and the southeast. And there is a challenge to that. So I think all of these things coming together. So building accommodation, preventing people going into temporary accommodation to begin with, more working with the private sector and some regulation, and then working with particular demographics that we know need support and building more additional support and accommodation. So people that need that little bit of extra help just to get through and have a good life. That's the kind of territory that we need to be into as well. Um, and in the meantime, we will do all of this to stop um, having to do what London's done, which is sending people hundreds of miles away just to find cheap accommodation. Both great. Thanks very much. No? Good to talk to you. Brilliant. Thank you. Cool. That was Bev Craig, the leader of Manchester City Council, speaking to us this week in her office. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. If you like this kind of journalism, you want to hear from people like Bev Cray, you want to hear our analysis, our special reporting on issues across Greater Manchester, including housing, including our upcoming enormous bit of work on homelessness, please do join us as a member. It costs £7 a month. You get two extra editions of the Mill in your inbox every week. You'll be among the most well-informed people in, the, in, in Greater Manchester. You'll also be supporting the renaissance in, in high-quality journalism in the city region. Uh, £7 a month. Please go to manchestermill.co.uk forward slash subscribe uh, to help us out. Subscribe, um, become part of our community, come to our events, all that kind of thing. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be in your feed very soon and have a lovely weekend. <laughs>